I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. On January 11th, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in one of the most important First Amendment cases of the current term, Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association. That case asks whether public sector employees can be required to support the bargaining activities of a union they may not agree with. Joining me to discuss the constitutional issues in Friedrichs and to predict how the court will rule are two of the leading scholars in this area who have written thoughtfully on uh, different sides of this important case. Catherine Fisk is Chancellor's Professor of Law at the University of California, Irvine School of Law. And David Forte is Professor of Law at the Cleveland State University, Marshall College of Law. Catherine, David, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. We are pleased to be here. Wonderful. Well, let us jump right in. Catherine, can you tell our listeners uh, briefly the facts of the Friedrichs case and what the basic constitutional issue is? Friedrichs is a case brought by several California public school teachers challenging a provision in California law and in the collective bargaining agreement negotiated by their union requiring that they pay a fee to the union that represents their fair share of the cost that the union incurs in negotiating and administering the contract that they are governed by. A union has a legal duty to fairly represent all employees in the bargaining unit. No employee is required to join the union. No employee is required to support the union. But when a majority choose union representation, all must pay. It's essentially a majoritarian democratic model. In order to defray the cost of the services that the union is required to provide to everybody, members and non-members alike, unions in about half the states are permitted to agree with employers that all represented employees must pay a fee to discharge the cost of the services the union must provide. The school teachers argue that the fee that they have to pay is speech because the union uses it to engage in speech activities, and that being required to pay a fee is therefore compelled speech that violates their First Amendment rights. Thank you so much for that summary. Uh, David, is there anything you'd like to add uh, or amplify? And uh, can you also tell us about the Abood case, which the court in this case is being asked to overrule? Yes, the story begins with a case called Abood versus Detroit Board of Education. Abood is spelled A-B-O-O-D. Now, that case held that in a public employee, public union situation, people who did not join the union could not be forced to pay that part of the fee that was charged for union services for them that the union would use for political or lobbying purposes. 
When that case came down in 1977, it was regarded as a free speech case, uh, even though it permitted the, uh, the collection of agency fees for union services that were not political. Um, it allowed the employee not to have to pay for those that portion of the fee that the union collected that would go for political purposes. Subsequent to Abood, most of the cases were debating a couple of issues regarding Abood. One was, how do you determine the difference between union activities that's designed for the benefit of the working situation of the workers and union activities that's designed to bring about a political effect? That was one issue. The second issue was, is the union under an obligation, and what kind of obligation, to give fair notice about the portion of the fees that it's paying for political activities? Should the union give notice beforehand so that the employee has the right to opt in to pay for those political, that portion of activities that are political? Or should the employee be given only an opt-out uh, option in which... Uh, the union is, assesses the fees, that the, and the initiative must come from the employee to opt out of that portion of the fees. However, as, as the years went by, Justice Powell's dissent in the boot began to take on some weight. Justice Powell dissented and said, well, it's true that under federal law, private employers may make an agreement with their unions, uh, to assess agency fees uh, if they wish to. Um, but in the public union situation, <clears throat> I'm hard-pressed, Justice Powell said, to determine the difference between bargaining for an employment situation and bargaining for a political result, because when you bargain with a political agency, it's inevitably making a policy decision which is uh, political. That notion began to grow in, in substance by critics of the Abood decision, and then Abood turned out later to be not so much a decision that was hailed as protecting employees' right to free speech, <clears throat> where they couldn't be compelled to pay fees for political activities, but as a restriction on their free speech, because the theory was that all activities by a union and a public union situation, a public employer situation, were political in its nature. And thus, in a case called uh, Knox versus SIEU, Justice Alito, uh, and he uh, echoed this in a case called Teachers, uh, from an earlier case, uh, echoed this in a case called Harris versus Quinn, uh, took issue directly with Abood's premise that there could be a distinction between union activities designed for working situations in a public situation and union activities that were political, but rather that in the nature of activities in a political, in a union public situation, all negotiation with a, a, a state uh, education association, for example, was policy, was political, and that nobody should be compelled to pay for those positions that he was, disagree that he disagreed with. Thank you so much for that, and I very much appreciate both of your uh, descriptive account of, of these two cases. We're getting a good sense of the stakes. Catherine, let's now dig into the substance of Abood. As, as, as uh, David described it, the criticism is that in the public, unlike the private sector, 
all union activity is political, therefore the, the compelled fees are compelled speech. You've written, though, uh, quote, if it violates the First Amendment rights of a non-member to pay fees to the union that is required by law to provide representation service, it equally violates the right of the union and its members to use their money to speak on behalf of the non-payers. So tell us about your view of the First Amendment interest on both sides of this equation and why you think Abood was correctly decided. Well, I should be clear. I don't think that paying money for services is speech at all. I think it's paying money for services. We all pay money over our objection for activity that is used for speech purposes. Taxes is an obvious example. Or when you pay your health insurance premium that you're required to have, the company uses that for speech purposes. That said, the Supreme Court took the position in Abood years ago that union fees are speech and therefore uh, compelling payment of fair share fees violates the First Amendment. If you take that position that the non-member is compelled to engage in speech activity by paying fees for, to the union for contract administration services, but the union at the same time has the duty to provide services to non-paying non-members, then either the union as an entity or its members, which is where it gets its money, are being compelled by the duty of fair representation to provide services for non-payers. There's compulsion either way. That's in the nature of majoritarian democracy. The problem with the Friedrich's argument or the Abood position is that it regards the speech of only some of the government employees who pay fees or dues as being a First Amendment compulsion and not that of others. Thanks so much for that. David, what is your response to Catherine's argument that there are First Amendment interests on both sides, and uh, why do you think that Abood was wrongly decided? Um, the First of all, the we're, we're in a, a situation, a historic situation regarding the First Amendment that we haven't seen since the 1960s. And that is, under Chief Justice Roberts, the First Amendment purview of protecting activities because of their expressive content is expanding quite enormously. We've never seen so many marginal activities such as um, um, false claims of being a war veteran and so forth, being protected uh, as we have under Chief Justice Roberts. So the context has to be that Chief Justice Roberts, uh, supported by the conservatives and some of the liberals, see that there's a generic danger societally in what's happening to free speech that we see uh, in many aspects of our culture. And the second point is that within this notion, Chief Justice Roberts regards money as talk. Um, uh, money talks. He's in, in Citizens United, he did that in regard to campaign finances. 
that money and the application of money to influencing decisions is is undeniable. And he decides to recognize that as an undeniable fact, and therefore the application of money to public policy issues is a form of speech. So with that context of a desire to expand the range of individual speech in regard to being compelled to have to say something or being compelled to take a position, not only here, but in all other situations, cultural situations, which we often see on college campuses as politically correct coercion and pressures, I see Justice Roberts erecting a barrier here. And that's why I think this decision will not harm unions. None of the uh, states that have opted to do away with agency fees have seen a vastly diminished union presence in their public unions. I think unions will then earn their position as true representatives without having to have to coerce non-willing members to support policies they disagree with. Take, for example, tenure, teacher tenure, or merit pay raises. Unions typically in uh, public uh, education situations go for across-the-board wages as opposed to merit wages. Well, if you're a good teacher, you don't want to have to pay for a position which is politically anathema to you in terms of your own living, in terms of your own uh, quality of, uh, of professionalism, by having to pay for a position which says everyone gets the same pay raise across the board. They may be able to get that out of the, uh, out of the state, but you should have to be paid for a position which you regard as diametrically opposed to public policy. Uh, thanks so much for that. Catherine, tell us about the practical consequences of overturning Abood. You've written in a, a SCOTUS blog symposium that the court shouldn't decide either of the main issues in the case because there wasn't an appropriate factual record. But imagine that Abood is overturned. Um, uh, some claim, and the justice, the liberal justice has suggested, a ruling against the unions could affect compelled fees paid to bar associations, by lawyers, to public universities, by students. What do you think of that argument, and do you agree with David that it would not, in fact, um, harm public sector unions, or do you think, in fact, it, it could spell their death knell? I think it's neither true that elimination of agency fees in the half the states that allow it will kill unions, nor is it true that it won't have any effect at all. We're speculating here. There is absolutely no evidence in the record in the Friedrich's case because the petitioners simply walked into court, filed a lawsuit, and asked for the court to rule against them in order that they could get to the Supreme Court. But we do know that union density in the states that prohibit agency fees is lower than in the states that allow agency fees. We also know that in the state of Wisconsin, which banned uh, agency fees in some occupations in 2010, the occupations that were represented by unions that supported Scott Walker's opponent, we know that union density has fallen quite a bit in those occupations while remaining largely unchanged in the occupations firefighting police, the public safety occupations that supported Scott Walker's electoral campaign. But that's speculation. We don't really know what's going to happen in California, in teachers' unions, or elsewhere. What we do 
know, though, is that there will be further lawsuits if the petitioners win in Friedrichs, arguing not merely that paying fees violates their First Amendment rights, but that it violates their First Amendment rights for the union to represent them over their objection at all. That is, at the moment, they're complaining only that they're compelled to support financially the union. But, and indeed, I should point out in the argument yesterday, Michael Carvin, the lawyer for the petitioner, said he had no objection to the requirement in the law that the union represents everybody over their objection, including those who would rather not be unionized. But we also know that there are lawsuits that have been filed in various courts around the country arguing that it violates the rights of employees who would prefer not to be represented by a union to even be represented at all. In other words, they want to get rid of the majoritarian principle of one union representative. I suspect such lawsuits will percolate up if the petitioners win in Friedrichs. Uh, David, what do you think some of the other consequences of a victory in Friedrichs could be? The liberal justices were concerned that scores, uh, if not uh, hundreds of, of, of laws requiring various kinds of compelled contributions might be called into question. Uh, do you agree? Um, I think their um, complaints about that demonstrated that uh, to get to the chase here, that they think the votes are against them. Um, Justice Kennedy, in particular, seems very resistant to the argument that he would be one of the uh, swing votes. Uh, they think that the doctrine of compelled speech, uh, actually set up by Abood, but now extended to the logical uh, implications of Abood, that one shouldn't be forced to pay for a political position uh, by the government, um, is uh, has legs and it will probably take the day, and so their sort of rearguard action was a policy rearguard action, saying that except in one instance, which I'll explain in a, in a moment, um, saying that there would be detrimental effects uh, that people would come to rely upon this, um, that unions would be weakened. Well, the federal government does not allow agency fees for the federal uh, public unions, and they're and they've remained uh, uh, very strong. The regarding, regarding student fees, we already have cases on student fees, uh, two or three major cases on student fees, that when students pay fees, they pay fees for access to an open uh, ability to openly express uh, educational and political views, and, and, and they're not discernible as supporting an opposition uh, point of view. So I think some of the... Uh, Sky is falling complaints of the opposition on uh, the opposition uh, justices actually went a step too far and showed that their argument is a little bit a little bit weaker. Now the one exception I just mentioned was, <clears throat> was particularly by uh, uh, General Verrilli, uh, I mean Solicitor General, Assistant Solicitor General Verrilli, um, and uh, the person representing the California uh, Teachers Association was a doctrinal argument, and that, I think, was a much stronger argument. Over the years, the Supreme
Supreme Court has been moving in two different directions when it comes to speech in an employment situation. The first direction is the one we've been talking about, the Abood public union direction, where it is giving more and more power to the individual not to be compelled to say speech. The other is what's called government employment speech, that when you work for the government and the government acts as if it's a private employer, you have to abide by what the government's position is in terms of policy, and it can actually compel you to say things. If you work for the State Department, you have to say what the State Department puts out as policy, whether you agree with it or not, or you can lose your job. Um, there are certain exceptions that you can make certain public uh, issue pronouncements uh, that are not directly related to the well-being and, and efficiency of the office. Uh, that's called the Pickering Rule. But basically, that's it's a uh, the uh, attorneys for the uh, for the uh, California Teachers Association put forward. That's a lower level kind of test, so long as there's a reasonableness of the government saying that certain speech in an employment capacity can be compelled. Uh, then that's fine. Abood is, I mean, the uh, Friedrichs would raise that test on the compelled union speech area to a strict scrutiny level. And so they were arguing a very principled argument that this should be put under the basket of government employment speech, not government political speech. And it's on that issue, that doctrinal issue, that I think the, uh, uh, the case will be decided. It will be a category distinction. What is this category? Is it a category of government speech or is it a category of political speech? And once that category line is drawn, I think the results of the case will follow automatically. Uh, thanks for that. Catherine, do you agree with David that the case will be decided on this line between government speech and private speech? And tell us also uh, about the fascinating discussion in the oral argument about stare decisis, or let the decision stand. Uh, Justice Breyer basically said, look, let's assume that I don't agree with uh, Abood, I think Plessy versus Ferguson was a case that should have been overruled, but he said uh, this is not that kind of case. He can't find the basic principle that this is at the heart of the First Amendment. And he said if we're going to overrule this without a really good reason, then we'd have to overrule all sorts of other cases as well. So with respect to the categories of government speech versus political speech, there are other categories of speech as well. Government speech is where the government itself speaks. So when the Supreme Court requires police officers to give a Miranda warning when they arrest a suspect, that's government speech. When teachers are required to teach the curriculum, that's government speech. But there is a category of government employee speech that is not government speech, that is not the government speaking through people, but rather it is the employees of the government speaking about their workplace. The case, in addition to Pickering, which is a 1968 case about a teacher criticizing a school board, the most, more recent case is Justice Kennedy's opinion in Garcetti versus Ceballos. Richard Ceballos was a deputy Los Angeles district attorney who wrote a memo to his supervisor expressing concern that the DA's office was using 
perjured police testimony in criminal cases. That is not government speech. It's not the government taking this position about what was happening. Indeed, his supervisor was irate at him for writing this memo and punished him for doing so. So he filed a First Amendment suit saying, I was punished for speaking on a matter of public concern, using perjured testimony in criminal cases and the possibility of wrongful convictions. That violates my First Amendment rights. Justice Kennedy, joined by the same four justices who would be the conservative five-justice majority in Friedrichs, ruled that government employees have no free speech rights, no First Amendment rights to speak in their capacity as government employees. Just as a private employer, absent some statutory restriction, can punish an employee for expressing a view that the private employer finds anathema, so too can the government punish its employees for expressing views that they don't like. The doctrinal problem that the court confronts is that it can't be that if a union bargains over protections for employees who write memos critical of their supervisors, that is political and is gets the highest level of First Amendment protection, and thus employees have a First Amendment right not to pay fees to the union to support a contract provision that would prevent them from being disciplined for writing that memo, or that would require the union, there is, the union is required, if there is such a contract provision, to process a grievance on behalf of a non-paying employee who's disciplined for writing that memo. It can't be that you have no right as an individual to write the memo. That's what Garcetti versus Ceballos held. But you have a First Amendment right not to pay the union your fair share of the union's cost of supporting your right to write the memo. The way that, that Justice uh, Kennedy tried to deal with this in the argument yesterday was saying, well, you're, he said to the lawyer, you're committing the error of, um, of equating the speech of an individual with the speech of a group. But of course, that's how constitutional rights work. When Rebecca Friedrichs wants not to have to pay the union the cost of negotiating a contract or enforcing a contract that gives her the right to write a memo, she's asserting that right as an individual. If she doesn't have the right as an individual under Garcetti to write the memo, why does she have the right as an individual not to pay the fees to enforce the contract that gives her the right not to write the memo. That's the doctrinal problem that the court is going to have to deal with. With respect to stare decisis, the argument focused on whether there is a basis for overturning precedent. Are there special circumstances? And Michael Carvin, the lawyer for Friedrichs, 
said that special circumstances are only required when the court is declining to expand a constitutional right, but it's free to overturn precedent every time it is um, expanding constitutional rights. That's a distinction that doesn't make any sense. Truthfully, stare decisis constrains the court only when a majority of the court doesn't want to recognize a new constitutional right. I think this is a term where they are poised to overrule precedent on a whole slew of issues. This case, affirmative action in higher education, quite honestly, I think they have a majority that wants to do some things and they're going to overturn whatever precedent they want. It's a form of judicial activism. It's just conservative judicial activism. It's no worse or no better than when liberals do it. I just think we should be clear that this is activism, regardless of the ideological slant of the court. Uh, thanks very much for that. Uh, David, uh, your response first, your thoughts on uh, Catherine's uh, parsing of the Garcetti uh, case and the question of collective versus individual speech, and then your your take on that really interesting discussion of, of the importance of precedent in the oral argument yesterday and how you think the conservative justices may react. Um, I read the oral argument, and uh, to me, I thought that the attempt, a principled attempt, uh, to try to put this under employment government speech would not work. Um, it, there's a difference between the government either compelling you to say something or compelling you to be silent and non-critical because it's your employee, and the government charging you to take a political position. Um, it's the same as in the case of Woolley versus Maynard. Uh, the government can certainly say the New Hampshire motto, live free or die, but it can't compel someone else to carry that message on his car. The government certainly can say uh, there should be no merit pay raises, but it can't compel someone to pay for that government message. And I think that attempted distinction between the government acting as a private employer and the government acting in a political way is eventually not going to work in this case. And, uh, and that's why I think the expansion of free speech rights in the area of union representation will win in this situation. Regarding stare decisis, stare decisis has long been a wounded and last gasp rear action for both conservatives and liberals when a majority of the court, as Professor Fisk says, wishes to move in a new direction, whether it is on issues of gay marriage or issues of church-state relations. Um, and um, opposed to stare decisis is an argument that goes in one of two totally opposite directions. One argument, the so-called living constitution, is, well, no matter what we've said for 200 years or 150 years, things have changed, we've moved on, we need a new, different legal rule. We cannot be tied to the past. The other, which goes exactly in the opposite direction, is, yes, we've been doing this for 30 or 40 years, but now we discover that the framers thought that was wrong, and we want to go back to original point of view. 
this point of view is an expansion of First Amendment jurisprudence towards a more libertarian attitude towards the First Amendment, which was available, which the liberals pushed in the 1950s and 60s, which Chief Justice Rehnquist attempted to constrain, but which Chief Justice Roberts has taken up again. And so I think we now have a movement for expansion of First Amendment libertarian type of speech that is going to swallow up precedence and that this case will come out on Friedrich's side. Interesting. Uh, Catherine, I'll ask you to predict how the court will rule. There had been rumblings in an earlier case that Justice Antonin Scalia might be more sympathetic to the union side, but that proved not to be uh, the case uh, in, in, in a series of cases that the court recently decided. So, so how do you think the court uh, will rule? Uh, I, I, let, me, l- let me leave it at that. And on what grounds? He who makes predictions tends to wind up uh, with egg on one's face. I think that you can infer from Justice Kennedy's questions and Justice Scalia's questions that they are quite hostile to the position advocated by the union, by the state of California, and by the United States. Kennedy is occasionally an oral argument um, prone to asking tough questions of both sides, but in this case, all of his questions reflected hostility to the Union State and United States position. Um, Scalia rarely plays the devil's advocate in argument, and his questions, too, were quite hostile. Um, So if you judge based on the tenor of their questions, it seems clear that there are five votes to rule for Friedrichs. Thanks so much for that. All right, it's time, uh, ladies and gentlemen, for closing arguments. David, uh, why is this case important? Uh, what are the constitutional stakes, and why should people care about it? The constitutional stakes in this case are that uh, compulsion to pay for a political position that you disagree with is not permitted under the Constitution, that it is another step in my view of Chief Justice Roberts's view, that we are in a cultural era of coercion of silence, of coercion of position, uh, that we see it, as I mentioned, on college campuses, which he's aware of. Um, and I think he has a libertarian view of the First Amendment. Uh, I think he, he believes that the pressures of the government coercing people into taking positions has gone too far and that this will be a good and salubrious uh, moment for that view of the First Amendment to continue. It also, by the by, may be a healthy thing for unions. Unions then will have to represent uh, substantively more their workers' interests rather than political positions uh, across the board. So it may be a win-win situation, both for the country and the Constitution and for labor relations. Many thanks for that. And Catherine, your closing argument about why this case is important, what are the constitutional stakes, and why people should care about it? This case is important because it is a case that casts doubt on 
the majoritarian principle that when we live in a community, we all have to contribute money or engage in activity that sometimes we don't like. I'm a pacifist and have been my whole life, but I paid a lot of taxes to support a a lot of wars that I am deeply philosophically opposed to. But I live in a society where the majority disagrees with me. I am an investor in pension funds because I have a government employee pension fund. My pension fund is invested over my objection in stocks of corporations that engage in political speech. And under Citizens United, individual shareholders, and I am one, has no right to control the speech of the corporation under Citizens United. So similarly, government employees have, federal government employees have no right to engage in partisan political activity in their off-duty hours because the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the Hatch Act that restricts partisan political activity. I don't think that we are in an age of First Amendment libertarianism. I think we are in an age of using the First Amendment to deregulate certain large entities, corporate political speech, for example, or to eliminate um, the ability to protect the privacy of certain kind of medical information, as the court held a couple of terms ago in Sorrell, uh, involving the sale of medical information. But we are also in an age in which government employees and employees generally have relatively few First Amendment rights. And it seems to me ironic that about the only First Amendment right that government employees have is the right to refuse to pay fees to the union that is compelled by law to provide them free legal services. That's not libertarian. That's free riding. Thank you so much, Catherine Fisk and David Forte, for a truly nuanced and informative discussion of one of the most important First Amendment uh, cases of the term. Uh, Please make sure to join us uh, next week, and thank you both again for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Danielle Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, at constitutionctr. I want to know what you think of the podcast. Email me at jrosen at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center across from Independence Hall in beautiful Philadelphia. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com backslash Panoply. And finally, my friends, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work. 
including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.